Hey everyone, this is Jeremy Bien from Reasonable Doubts. Unfortunately, we don't have a new episode this week, but be sure to tune in next week when we'll be interviewing Chris Mooney, author of Unscientific America. In the meantime, I wanted to share with our listeners a talk that Luke Galen recently gave to CFI Michigan on the subject of terror management theory. You may remember terror management theory from episode 51, Don't Fear the Reaper, which happens to be one of my favorites. Well, Luke's talk is about the same subject, but it also gives a lot of background information and experimental data that we didn't have time to discuss in that episode. So if you found that one interesting, I think you're going to enjoy this. As always, please send any questions, comments, challenges, etc. to doubtcast.org, and we'll see you next week. Before I start, I wanted to uh, get a feel for the audience. How many people have uh, heard or been exposed to the work of Ernest Becker at all? Just a show of hands or, or terror management theory. Okay, maybe about a third of people. All right. I didn't know how much knowledge to assume because um, because some of these some of the readings of Ernest Becker were big back in the uh, in the mid to late 70s, and he's experienced a revival since then. So I didn't know how many people were familiar with that. But uh, what I'm going to talk about uh, is the, uh, I'm going to break the talk roughly into, into three parts, before the Q&A, that is. Uh, on, um, uh, the first part I'll do is an introduction to some of the theories of, of Becker and, um, and his writings, uh, and background-wise. And then I'm going to move into, uh, in the middle part, I'll move into the reformulation of some of these theories and its application in psychology, and that's the terror management theory. So I'll be talking about some of the things like uh, the... Uh, the research and the studies, and then I'll finish off with some topics that I think would be relevant to most people here, having to do with terror management and things like religion, uh, fundamentalism, evolution, creationism, and some of those topics. So I also have a clip from a movie on terror management theory. I'll, I'll see if we can get the get that to work. I'll play that maybe about 10 minutes or so because it can illustrate some things probably better than I could uh, say it can do it visually. So also before I, uh, I talk, I want to give a, a nod to Professor Todd Williams, who's one of our faculty members out at Grand Valley, uh, his area of specialty is more, even more than mine, is on terror management theory. I kind of do the psychology and religion stuff. Some of you might be familiar if you've uh, been here before or talked to me. Um, but I've been uh, applying some of these ideas to psychology. But Professor Williams helped me a little bit with this presentation. Uh, that's more his area of expertise is, is on terror management theory. So... Um, so let me, uh, let me start off with Ernest Becker and some of his writings and some of his theories. Um, some of you might be familiar. He uh, Actually, I think he won the Pulitzer Prize for one of his books, The Denial of Death in 1973. Um, but his works, uh, he has three major works here, uh, as you can see, they're spanning the 60s and 70s. And then he actually died, I think, in 74, was it? It was right after Denial of Death came out. Um, and then Escape from Evil was published posthumously. Um, but... The, um, the span of his work there really uh, is interesting for its scope and its multidisciplinary nature. I put up here a kind of a joke that he's uh, uh, applied, he talked about some of Freud's uh, theories and neo-Freudian theory, but he really applied it across different disciplines. His discipline was anthropology, but uh, he crossed a lot of different things like psychology, history, uh, the humanities. Um, his work really spans... Uh, uh, 
a variety of thinkers, some of which would, we would know as modern existentialism. Uh, so, like, for example, the philosophy of Kierkegaard and some of the other ex- existentialists like the French, uh, the Sartre and Camus. Um, but he also uh, used some neo-Freudian work. If you, if you remember back in your Psych 101 days, you might have heard about Freud's theories being reformulated by a generation after him. Um, so Otto Rank was one of these who was lesser known, and Becker was responsible in some ways for bringing him back. But uh, his theories tend to be, as I mentioned, meta, uh, meta-theoretical drawing from different disciplines, but they're also what's called essentialist. He boils down a lot of different phenomena into some central underlying things, kind of like Freud did. Um, and obviously one of those things is the denial of death, which is what we'll talk about. So what I will do is I'll just do a five-minute, ten-minute crash course on Ernest Becker. A lot of his reading is fairly dense, but what it boils down to is that, first of all, uh, in a Darwinian sense, we are animals, uh, and that a lot of his, a lot of our, everything that we do has to be predicated on the fact that we are essentially pieces of electric meat. Uh, we've evolved with a, with the urge to survive and reproduce. So there's no way getting around that. Just like in Freudian theory, there's no way getting around the fact that uh, you know nature is red in tooth and claw. A lot of our motivation stems from pure survival instinct. But the paradox is that we also have evolved large brains. And one of the things that large brains do is project into the future. What if? What if I do that? So we can, people debate about whether that's one of our, the reasons that a large brain evolved is because it helps us plan for the future and that's our key to survival. But a few would argue that what it it does end up doing, whether it was selected for or not, is to do what if hypotheticals. So we think about ourselves, we metacognate, but we also project into the future. What would happen if I do this or do that? The, uh, what that gives us, I guess, if you want to think of this as a good thing, is that it makes us self-aware. So the part of metacognating is thinking about ourselves. And it has a lot of cool stuff that goes along with that, too. We have a capacity for awe and wonder. Uh, we, it allows us to, some, uh, to self-regulate to some degree, to say, I'm going to you know, say, squirrel up my nuts for the future or I'll wait and act on these things. But it also creates a partial mind-body dualism in that we, the mental capacities separate us, uh, or we like to think they do, that we think that it separates us from our physical capacities. But uh, if you've read Freud or your basic psychoanalytic theory, you know that it can also create what Freud called neuroses. uh, And that is certain... uh, by thinking about things, we become anxious or uh, depressed about certain aspects of our humanity. Uh, so what, what Alfred Adler did, who was one of Freud's disciples, you probably uh, remember that Freud wasn't an easy guy to get along with because he was very dogmatic about his theories. So people like Jung and, and Adler and other disciples were kind of kicked out successively when they disagreed with Freud. What Adler's disagreement was is Freud's excessive focus on sexual, psychosexual factors, but uh, what, what the term inferiority complex comes from Adler. What, what Adler thought was is that our early environment, our relationships with people were equally influential. So, for example, our striving together with our siblings for attention, uh, he thought that that was our fundamental, one of our fundamental drives. Uh, it could be a bad thing, as if you have siblings, you know that there's negative aspects to, the, to striving with them for attention, but it could also lead to good things, to striving to overcome things. To, uh, to learn and master our world. So this is a, a, a neo-Freudian concept that our struggle 
to overcome our inferiority. Essentially, when you're a baby, you're pretty helpless. You have a lot of infantile uh, neurosis, what Freud thought of as being uh, sort of in a one-down position, and um, that we, uh, because the baby recognizes at some extent that it can't do things. It can't, it doesn't have language, it's clumsy, it doesn't have the knowledge that mommy and daddy seem to have. Uh, so it leads to a sense of inferiority that we strive to overcome. But as what we're going to talk, focus on tonight, what, what Becker thought was that one of the ultimate sources of anxiety when we project into the future is, wow, I'm going to die. Or there's a limitation to my existence. Uh, children start to learn about that when they see their pet die or grandma die or their, their parents sit them down and explain things. It's, you could almost, uh, some, uh, Becker has some passages in his writings where he talks about children having to, you can almost see the wheels in motion. Oh, I'm going to die too because I'm just like that. So this creates, uh, the, the neurosis here is a, the ultimate inferiority complex. You're limited. Your lifespan is limited. Um, so well, I'll talk later on about the implications for religion, but just on an interpsychic level for the individual, this presents problems when you realize that your lifespan is limited. Uh, he quotes actually James Baldwin in his book. Let me read this because this is, I think this is very, a good way to put this. Life is tragic simply because the earth turns and the sun inexorably rises and sets, and one day for each of us, the sun will go down for the last, last time. Perhaps the whole root of our trouble, the human trouble, is that we will sacrifice all the beauty of our lives, will imprison ourselves in totems, taboos, crosses, blood sacrifices, steeples, mosques, races, armies, flags, nations, in order to deny the fact of death, which is the only fact we have. That's uplifting. Uh, what, but um, the, the, ultimate, the neurotic part of this is that uh, it creates a paradox in that we realize that we must die, but in striving to overcome that, it creates more problems in some instances. That is, the, the, we put a lot of energy into denying death. So uh, I guess one way to summarize the theory in that is it's good to have a brain that can plan for the future and be self-aware, but the problem is, is that we, uh, when we become scared of our own mortality, it sets up a defense against that. No, no, no. And part of the defense involves symbols. Uh, we think symbolically, uh, and so our symbols set up a barrier. And many of these symbols are, and I'll talk about examples of some of these, but religious, obviously, symbols do this, but also other cultural symbols, political symbols, symbols of, of, um, of our mastery over the world, capitalism and making money and all that. So what Beckwith's thought was, and I think this is the most interesting aspect of the theory, is that culture itself is a buffer against these threats to our self-esteem. Uh, that uh, we set up our belief in culture, uh, human culture really is a, an attempt to deal with threats to our own uh, mortality and our self-esteem. So what, uh, we should define first what self-esteem is. Self-esteem is actually something that is not just a product of you, Individually, what Becker thought was is that self-esteem was something that you get a sense of only through other people, um, so that you think of yourself as a valued person who has uh, who has powers, can act upon the world. But that's socially validated. First, obviously, with your parents. Your parents validate your self-esteem by telling you you're a good little girl or boy. Uh, they they say here's what you need to do to be good or bad. This is. This is no, no, no. This is yes, yes, yes. But that becomes more sophisticated when you interact with your siblings, as I mentioned before, or your peers. You receive that, that check on your self-esteem from a gradually expanding circle of people. Your brothers and sisters can say, you know, you're, you're a jerk, 
or you're a good brother or sister, and your peers then do that too. So that you have uh, this move from your family to greater and greater boundaries, uh, groups, and then it becomes more abstract and symbolic as the child gets older into a young adult. So what Becker thought was is that a lot of the youthful striving that you uh, have as a, as a teenager especially is to get your sense of self-esteem and self-identity from groups and then abstract symbols. So you might then latch on to ideologies. For many people, this is religion, uh, that you start to you join a church, you get a sense of what you need to do to be good or bad uh, uh, from those groups too. Now, uh, the good thing about these is that they give you clear guidelines to derive your self-esteem. They said, here's what you need. If you're in a culture, here's what you need to do to be valued uh, and derive self-esteem. Uh, as you might imagine, though, from the pictures I put up there, that a lot of the negative aspects are also efforts to achieve self-esteem as well. Uh, that is, that if you don't get self-esteem from your family, from your peers, that uh, in the normal, acceptable ways, you'll find self-esteem in other ways as well. So this is why people join cults as well as churches. This is why people join gangs as well as Boy Scouts. So what Becker thought was this could be, again, positive or negative, but that in any event, you derive your sense of self-esteem from, uh, from groups and abstract symbols. He called this, in his terminology, a hero striving system. A hero system is where whatever you use to seek pride and superiority. Again, let me, let me quote at length here, but this is put very well by Becker. Some people work out their urge to superiority by applying their physical and sexual attractiveness, what the psychoanalysts call the Don Juan character. Other work, you know, others work it out by the superiority of their minds, others by being generous and helpful, others by making superior things or money or playing beautiful music or being an unusual mimic and joke teller. Some work it out by being devoted slaves. I am a locus of real value because I serve a great man. Others serve the corporation to get the same feeling, and some serve war machines, and so on and so on. So what Becker thought was that, um, that all our uh, culture and all our strivings are to, this hero quest is to feel uh, esteem, to feel that we have purpose there. So uh, you get that from investing in yourself, your education, your projects, uh, your relationships with other people. You can get that from in secular ways uh, and as well as religious ways. But uh, for some people like professor types, you get your esteem by publishing articles or giving talks. Uh, for some people, uh, you paint your masterpiece, like Charles, he paints his masterpiece. For some people, it's having children. And for some people, uh, that the system is different for different people, but they all boil down to a sense of I'm worthwhile. Look at this. Look at me. Look what I can do. Uh, and some of these are abstract to the point of being, uh, you know, just symbols of systems. I uh, serve a great God. I, uh, I, you know, do these religious type spiritual tasks. But the cultural worldviews basically provide us with not only with answers to questions, what's going to happen to me when I die? Uh, what do I need to do to go to heaven? Uh, you know, who am I? Uh, they give us a sense of ethics as well. What's, how should I act? How should I not act? Um, and that we internalize these, or if you prefer the psychoanalytic type terminology, you introject them. From, instead of saying, well, this is what the man wants me to do, this is what culture wants me to do, you actually then start to believe yourself, this is what I should do. Uh, but in regards to the death anxiety part, they also teach us what we need to do to, to die, or as I'll talk about in just a second, to transcend death as well. That is, these cultural symbols provide a buffer against our mortality fears. Yes, I've heard about this death thing. Yes, I'm going to physically die, but, 
and here's how it doesn't matter. Here's how I can transcend that. So immortality and immortality striving is a big part of this theory. Now, this could be literal. You could then have a worldview, like a religious worldview, that says you, you, your ego, yourself, won't die. You'll go somewhere else to heaven. Um, or in an Eastern system, it might be that the you, the ego is obliterated, but part of it will come back or some sort of thing. But the gist of all those things is that it's, the end is not the end to you. But it could also be symbolic. And this is the uh, more interesting part is that it's abstract. In some ways, all the th this cultural striving is a form of immortality striving. You create children to, to uh, you might die, but your genes and your legacy will live on and the memories of people. Um, you create this thing. I made this. I built a pyramid. I did these things. I made a lot of money. Those are all from Becker's system immortality strivings. The reason they're important to us is because they show I was here. I mattered in my time here. And they maintain our self-esteem. Now, this gets to certain problems. If you're so invested in these strivings, in these worldviews, to drive your self-esteem, that means any threat to those worldviews, to that symbolic system, if they're poked at, that's going to not just be a matter of no importance to you. It's going to be more than trivial. That will poke at your self-esteem. This person is challenging my worldview. The problem is, is that they don't necessarily have to be mean to do that because there are different worldviews. Every time you encounter a different person, a different culture, you see that the standards of normal differ. So what Becker thought was is that, um, the, uh, that the being presented with a different worldview is inherently threatening. Because if that guy's right and his worldview, and he seems perfectly happy you know, uh, with his system and it's contradictory to my system, there's a problem there for my system. What, uh, and so what he thought was a lot of warfare and strife and prejudice was really about more than just you're different, I don't like you, you, you have funny gods and the different gods, but that actually was a threat to our self-esteem in a, in a sense of it's threatening to my, if he's right, I'm not going to go to heaven or there isn't a heaven. Uh, in many cases, that's, well, I'll talk about the implications for atheism in just a second, but you can, you've probably already come to that conclusion in this theory. That's a very different worldview that is inherently threatening to people with uh, theistic worldviews. So what we have to do when we're presented with somebody with these different worldviews is strive against them to say, no, 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 mine is correct. Now, there's different ways this can happen, uh, and they range, I guess, from the level of nastiness, but one way that we can do is to simply be derogatory against different worldviews. We could say those people are stupid, they're inferior, uh, it's, they're quaint maybe, um, we, we, but another way to, to derogate people is to try to convert them away from their worldview. So proselytization or missionary work, really what Becker thought is inherently what that is doing is saying, well, if I can get that person to change their incorrect worldview to my worldview, that validates my worldview. Uh, you, were, you were wrong, you were sort of benighted, you were raised funny, now you're seeing things correctly, that's tremendously powerful for validating our self-esteem because we got them on board with our worldview. Uh, so missionary work and proselytization might be about gaining a convert or saving that person's soul, but it's also about validating our worldview if we're the missionary. Um, another way to do this would be to assimilate people, and that is to require them to give up part of their different worldview and take on our worldview. They may not totally convert, but we can neutralize the threat that that worldview that contradicts our worldview presents by getting them to give up part of it. Uh, so I put in a picture of a Native American here. You can see that you know a lot of the assimilation of Native Americans obviously that serves some practical purpose of getting them off the you know off the land that we want and getting them into a school that to neutralize them. But in a 
in an abstract way, it also validates our worldview. Um, we've assimilated them and neutralized the contradictory worldview there. Uh, accommodation is another way we can do this by basically um, uh, by declining the other worldview by incorporating certain elements into ours. So we might not, we're not going to give up our worldview, but we'll take on parts of the other worldview in a very s sterilized sort of way. The example that some of the TMT researchers give is the symbols of like in the 60s, if you recall, the hippie culture. Uh, the, uh, the hippies presented a contradictory idea about what culture should be to the mainstream sort of bourgeois society. They dressed in beads and smoked dope and you know, listened to rock and roll. Um, but now if you notice that we've incorporated a lot of hippie symbols, but sort of eliminated all the really deep threatening things that they pose. The example that some of the TMT researchers give is blue jeans. Blue jeans used to be a working man's garment. Uh, they were tough. You were out there, you know, 100 years ago, you, were, you worked in blue jeans, blue collar sort of thing. The hippies wore blue jeans to sort of symbolize their, you know, we're hip, um, not in a hip way, but hip, the, uh, the, the beatniks and things like that. Now we have designer blue jeans. We've denatured it from the hippie threatening type abstract ideas and said you can wear jeans to work, you can wear them with a suit jacket. Granola bars, same thing. Now we can buy, you know, $5 granola bars with, with all kinds of ingredients. It used to be back to nature, man. You know, simplicity. And so we've taken away the threatening hippie elements and sort of made them mainstream. So this is an example of accommodation where we take certain elements uh, on and we might say, you know, wear beads like the Africans do, but we say that their religion is still, you know, wrong. Uh, and then the final way we can deal with another threat is the obvious one, and that is just to annihilate it. So Becker thought a lot of the terrible things in the world and the, the, the really the, the genocides and the warfares really they might have had political goals too or territorial goals, but they also had worldview uh, threat neutralization goals. So take like the elimination of the American Indians, the Native Americans. We, we, it's not enough to stamp them out physically and to kill them. We have to then, we really uprooted their traditions. We killed all the buffalo. Uh, you know, we didn't allow them to speak their own language. This shows uh, that, uh, from Becker's point of view, that we were stamping out the worldview threats that these people posed. Now, uh, these theories are, are abstract. If you've ever read any Becker, his uh, psychoanalytic language is the way that he describes things. I can, uh, I can already predict that many people have objections. If you've had scientific training, that the term unfalsifiability should crop up. Yes, that seems nice. Uh, these theories might seem intuitive, but how do you test something like that? And here's where terror management theory comes in. Uh, about uh, 10, 20 years ago, some of the social experimental psychologists, I gave uh, examples here of the three main ones, uh, Solomon and Greenberg and Pazinski, they, uh, they were fans of Becker's writings, but they wanted to test some of these ideas out empirically to see, well, do these things actually play out factually in a laboratory. Obviously, a lot of Freud's ideas in psychoanalysis haven't stood the test of time because he might have been accurate in his observations, but Freud's methodologies weren't scientific. So what I'm going to talk about now is what are some of the, how do we know that some of these things are really true or not? Uh, are they actually validated? The two main predictions that we can test with these are, one, that if we uh, threaten somebody with mortality-type thoughts if we remind them of death, what that should result in, if this is true, is a compensatory response to bolster their worldview. That is, they will say, uh, when threatened with death, no, 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 my worldview is correct, and to compensate against that. I drew my little diagram there that if you consider like a, a container analogy that death fears are kept in check by those worldviews that we talked about and that uh, there are uh, sort of a bulwark if I remind people of death and those death fears bubble upwards, that container must be 
reinforced to keep those death fears in check. So the person will then compensate for that by bolstering their worldviews. And then the other hypothesis is in the other direction. If I poke at somebody's worldviews or suggest that maybe they're not correct, what you should see on some level is an increase in their death anxiety. Uh, they might become more fearful of their own mortality if their worldviews are uh, challenged in some ways. So uh, the, I'll take the first one first. How can we do that? Uh, how is that even testable? Well, the mortality salience hypothesis that you could challenge somebody's mortality and then measure a response. There's different ways you can challenge them. One of the obvious ways to do it is to get them to think about their own death. So one of the simple ways to do it using an essay task, I'll show some examples uh, like in a laboratory setting, is to get a person to write an essay of what do they think is going to happen when they die. Um, now, if you're a good experimentalist, you'll say, well, what's the control condition? Uh, often what's used to control also with negative aspects, but without the mortality part, is to have them write about dental pain. Because for most people, that's a, unless you're a sadist or a masochist, that's a bad thing. Um, but that to write about when I experience dental pain, blah, 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 that's also a negative experience, but it shouldn't be. Unless your dentist is incredibly incompetent, uh, it probably won't result in your death. But that's one way that you could do that is to stoke these mortality fears by having the person briefly contemplate their own death, be it as vivid as possible. Uh, so when I do experiments, sometimes people write things like, you know, I'm going to go to heaven, it's going to be okay. But the point is that they thought about it, at least, what will happen to them when they die. Other studies have used things like the, they've used things like driver's ed footage where they show the bodies in the street and what can happen. That also increases mortality uh, salience. Or I'll give an example, I'll show you in the video clip, they actually use unconscious methods to prime people by flashing words very briefly on the screen, like subliminal advertising. So these are all ways that you can do. Uh, you can, oh, another clever one is to interview people outside of death-related things, like they have people take a survey standing out at the gates of a cemetery. That's kind of subtle, too. Um, but the... Um, the uh, uh, now, another criticism that many people probably have in their minds here is, well, um, I don't consciously think about... I might think about the death while I'm filling out the survey, but then it's gone from my mind. I wasn't... Unless I drove here, you know through a, a thunderstorm, which you probably did, you're not actively thinking about dying that much. The cool thing about this hypothesis, or rather the eerie thing, is that many of these effects are delayed to when the person is not consciously thinking about them. What happens when immediately afterwards, I drew this on like a diagram of when you have somebody write an essay or have them think about death, they engage in what's called approximate defense, where they actually consciously might say, well, you know, I'm going to go to heaven or I'm not going to die. I feel fine. I've got 40 years left. Uh, they're actually thinking about the death, but then those defenses go down, and if you catch them maybe 10, 15 minutes later when they're not actively thinking about death, that's where you start to see the distal defense of the worldview bolstering. That is, they don't have to bolster their worldview immediately after a death challenge because they're, they can say, I'm not going to die or I'm going to go to heaven. But those things, what's weird about this is that many of the effects work unconsciously. Um, the other way, the, the other hypothesis is that when you mess with somebody's worldviews, they unconsciously think more about death. Now, how can you measure that? Uh, one of the ways that's just straightforward is to give them a, a measure where they could fill out word fragments. And, and these fragments are ambiguous. They could be a variety of different words. So I just gave an example here of uh, you might have a, be presented with 20 fragments and you could do fill out in the gaps there. DE could be... Uh, Dear or deed or something like that, but it could also be dead, obviously. SK, blank, blank, L could be skill. SK, I'm not good at the, okay, skull is what I think of, but coffee, cough, cough, blank, blank could be coffin or coffee. So if you have enough of these things, you could fill them out in a neutral way or a death-related way, and then you just simply count up the number of times the death words crop up. 
And there's some other behavioral measures too. But what I'm actually do, the easier way for me to do this is to actually show you a clip from a movie. Uh, this is about a five or ten minute clip of this movie called Flight from Death. Has anybody seen this before? It's actually, I think it's on the web, but you could, you could rent it. If you're up this weekend for like you get one romantic comedy and then Flight from Death to <laughs> snuggle up with your honey. But uh, the Flight from Death movie is a documentary based on some of Ernest Becker's ideas. And the clip I'm going to show you right now, if this works, is a... Um, interviews with some of the social psychologists and they show some of the studies that they engage in. So let me actually see if I can boot this up and I'll play just a few, 10 minutes or so from this clip. What they're going to talk about here, I think I have it queued up correctly, is they're going to talk about some of the labor early laboratory studies which actually tested some of these ideas out to see if they would affect the participants. So let's see if this works. We don't know what to do with these ideas. It's like poetry. Uh, it may be interesting, but there's no way that you can actually test them. Uh, and this is where our training as experimental social psychologists was actually put to good use. Terror management theory came out of, of the writings of Ernest Becker. Um, his writings uh, answered some questions that, that, that we had been asking in our own work. We were social psychologists and we were very focused on empirical research. What we said is, well, okay, uh, let's try and think about ways of taking all of these ideas and, and let's really boil them down into some basic uh, statements about the nature of reality that we could then use to generate hypotheses and go out and actually test. The first component of terror management theory states that individuals need to sustain faith in a meaningful worldview. The second component states that individuals need to feel as though they are valued, protected members, objects of significance within this worldview. Psychologists would generally call this self-esteem. And if we can sustain these two psychological constructs, then we can function relatively securely in the world. And if these, if these constructs are threatened, then we're going to feel anxiety and have a need to defend those constructs. So we develop what we call the mortality salience hypothesis. And all that says is, look, if culture serves a death-denying function, then if you remind people that they're going to die, that should momentarily really increase the need for the death-denying aspects of their particular beliefs about reality. And that should be reflected by their reactions to other individuals who either bolster or support those beliefs or who undermine those beliefs by either being hostile to them or merely different from them. The very first study that we did was with municipal court judges in, in Tucson, Arizona. Judges have a kind of clear set of values that are part of their worldview, and that is to uphold the law. And so what we thought is that if we make some judges think about their own death, they should become more punitive toward a lawbreaker. So half the judges, on a random basis, were given questionnaires that asked them about their own death. Half were not given such a questionnaire. And then we had them actually look at uh, an actual court case. The most common case uh, in municipal court in Tucson is uh, solicitation of prostitution. They were simply asked to recommend a bond for the prostitute. Okay. What we found is the judges who were reminded of their own death before setting bond for the alleged prostitute recommended a bond of $455. 
The control judges, who were not reminded of their own death, set a bond, an average bond, of $50. In another study, Christian test subjects were asked to complete a questionnaire intended to determine how people form impressions of others. What the subjects didn't realize is that the researchers were actually making determinations about them. Embedded within some questionnaires were questions specifically formulated to make the reader think about his or her own death. The students were then asked to give their impressions of two fictitious individuals who on paper shared similar personality traits but differed in religious affiliation. And the hypothesis was that after the Christian subjects thought about their own death, they should be especially positive in their reactions to a fellow Christian student and especially negative toward a Jewish student. And that's exactly what we found. The students who did not receive death reminders showed no preference in their evaluations. These results were important indicators that attitudes towards others change when one is confronted with one's own death. However, the results did not speak to behavioral changes. And so one example of a study that, that we've done to, to test this idea was a study in which we wanted to see if reminding people of their own death would make them more reluctant to use cultural symbols or icons in inappropriate ways. For this study, subjects were asked to participate in what they were told were research experiments designed to explore both personality and creative problem solving. Once again, subjects completed personality questionnaires, some of which contained death reminders. When they're done with that, they come out, then we describe the two tasks for them, and their job is to try to complete the task. The first task required subjects to sift sand from a jar also containing water and black dye. Various items were available to help complete this task. We set it up so that the only object they could use to successfully achieve the goal of sifting the sand out was a little American flag. And so what they would have to do is secure the American flag with a rubber band on a, an empty jar and then pour the black dye through the American flag, which of course ruins the American flag. For the second task, subjects were asked to hang a crucifix on the study room wall. Again, various items were available to help them do so. In order to do that, the only object they could use to successfully hammer the nail into the wall so they can hang up the crucifix was the crucifix itself. Those students who had received death reminders tried more alternative ways to complete their tasks. They were more apprehensive to desecrate their most cherished cultural icons and took twice as long as those who were not reminded of their death prior to the experiment. Now that the terror management team had established that changes in behavior occurred when people thought about their own death, they were prepared to conduct what was to become their most striking and ominous study. If it could be determined that thinking of death caused behavior patterns to change, could it not also be determined that these behaviors might in fact be aggressive toward other individuals? The problem with measuring any type of aggressive behavior in a laboratory situation is the ethical concerns that it brings up. Um, we can't exactly have people 
punching one another, hitting, shooting, stabbing, um, that's frowned on ethically. So what we did was we devised a measure where we could safely assess uh, intent to harm another person. And we did that by using hot sauce. You know, Becker argued, and we got into this partly because we thought this can help explain real world prejudice and aggression against different others. But it was inspired by real incidents in which people have used hot sauce to physically attack other people. There was a case where a cook was, was angry at police and spiked a couple of cops' food with hot sauce. More significant and less humorous, uh, there are numerous cases in which parents have used hot sauce to punish their children which is a form of child abuse. But in the lab, what we thought we might be able to do is at least get some indication of an intention to hurt someone else simply because you've been reminded of your own death and they're threatening an aspect of your worldview. In this paradigm, the subjects come in and they're told that the study concerns personality and food preferences. Subjects were once again given a set of supposed personality questionnaires. Some included the death reminder and others did not. Then in what subjects were told was an unrelated study. They were asked to allot a variable amount of extremely hot sauce for a participant of dissimilar political background to taste and rate. Those who had received death reminders prescribed more than twice the amount of hot sauce as those who did not receive the death reminders. This has profound implications. These studies show that reminders of death play an influential role in the human psyche and can inspire us to act aggressively. While hot sauce itself might seem benign, the implications of these studies are frightening. What happens when the means of aggression is not hot sauce, but rather a gun or another weapon? And what might be the result if the issue at hand was whether or not to provide food aid to a starving country? Would we act differently if their culture posed a threat to our psychological equanimity? Okay, I'm going to pause it there. That's the preview. If you want to see the movie, you can get flight from death. But the, um, you can see the, uh, what they're doing in these cases is actually, in the laboratory studies, is trying to confirm this in a real-world way. Now, uh, some of these are very you know, abstract laboratory situations like hammering the crucifix or whatnot. But other ones actually uh, result in, in measurable behavioral changes. Um, but again, the fundamental point here is that there's an equivalence being made between the person's, between the person's worldviews as a bolstering defense against their own mortality in that bi-directional way. Um, so let me talk about, so I'll just, uh, I have like three or four studies like that that I want to talk about that might be of interest to, to you people here, uh, in that they cross some different domains of politics, religion, science, that sort of thing. There's hundreds of TMT studies that have been done so far, so I just sort of, sort of selected some out that I thought would be of interest to you. One of these is in the domain of politics. Uh, so going back to Becker's writings, he made some predictions about what kind of leaders would be appealing to people, particularly under the conditions where people feel threatened or their mortality specifically is threatened. Uh, Becker said uh, here that it is fear that makes people so willing to follow brash, strong-looking demagogues capable of cleaning the world of the vague, the weak, the uncertain, the evil. Ah, to give oneself over to their direction. What calm, what relief. 
Uh, in Becker's theory, the reason that people went after fascist-type leaders or vote for uh, demagogues is because they provide security and that some of these symbols that these leaders use are mortality-based things. So one thing that should get you to think about right away in our context is there are naturally occurring reminders of death as well. 9-11, for example. Uh, there was some uh, documentation after 9-11 occurred that many people shifted rightward in their support for President Bush, but also in uh, things like support for religion, cultural institutions. Nobody wanted to look unpatriotic. A TMT analysis of this sort of naturally occurring, this isn't an experiment, obviously, but a naturally occurring situation is that uh, our cultural symbols were attacked, not just our, our physical safety, and that we uh, would respond back not just militarily, but culturally in a symbolic way. Uh, so we can view the 9-11 towers as a symbolic representation of America. Uh, and so it's a double death whammy, not only physically dying, but also culturally dying. And that what TMT research found was is that people actually under threats of mortality in the lab, so like, again, writing an essay on their own death, tended to support President Bush more than alternative, I think it was Kerry, this was done back in 04, that, uh, that people tended to support his candidacy more than others when they were in the mortality salience as opposed to the control dental pain type condition. Um, now, well, rather than just a rightward shift, though, what the theory is is that it tends to be a with a mortality threat would reinforce support for whomever is a charismatic leader of your own political persuasion. So I sort of gave examples here down on these axes that some leaders are right and left. So let's just take the Bush, uh, Bush pair and Bush Jr. and then take two Democratic candidates, Kerry and Obama. So there's a right-left, obviously a right-left distinction. But there's also a charisma distinction too. Charisma as defined by, in, in this study that I'm going to talk about, they defined it by a, a leader who has a sense of confidence, provides a sense of optimism, but also a clear world vision. In other words, not just a technocrat uh, that I'm going to have policies, kind of like a Dukakis, if you remember that. Oh, boy. But, uh, but the, that it has a really values thing going on. So you can also look at these candidates. Uh, they separate on those dimensions. John Kerry, for whatever his competence, is not a particularly as inspiring as Obama is in the same way with the Bush father and son. Um, in fact, I think a Bush father recognized that he had a problem with the vision thing or something. I seem to remember. But in this experiment, what they did was is that they had candidates like this described on paper. They weren't these candidates, but they were. They balanced out the right-left dimension with the charisma, non-charisma dimension, and then, of course, had the people in those mortality threat versus dental pain conditions. And what they found was is that under threats of death, those people tended to prefer candidates who both were their own political persuasion. So conservatives did. Uh, vote more for a conservative or said they would who was a conservative, but liberals said that they would vote for a liberal candidate more who was also, too, charismatic. That is, it shifted, it polarized both of them in their political direction to candidates who provided very clear visions, emotional appeals, and things like that. So I don't want to give the impression that mortality and fear is a conservative shifting thing. It's a shift, it can be, but it's also a shift for liberals into a more simplistic liberal view, too. So uh, if I drew this in a diagram with red and blue here, uh, that what happens is, is that, uh, that mortality and fe death-related fears tend to cause both political ends of the spectrum to polarize, to favor uh, people like them, but who offer more sort of simplistic and charismatic answers. Uh, although some studies debate this, there is a debate in the literature about whether it might be a little bit more for conservatives than liberals, but, but the consensus tends to be that you also pr have negative attitudes polarized as well. So uh, you might 
be familiar with the stereotype that, that the prejudice or in-group prejudice tends to be higher among conservatives. Liberals tend to be much more, their value, their worldview, if you want to think of it in those terms, is more ecumenical and we're all going to sing Kumbaya together. And mortality salience has that effect as well. It causes conservatives to, uh, to have more negative attitudes towards dissimilar people, but it causes liberals to have more positive attitudes towards dissimilar people. Again, it polarizes them more in the direction of what they already value. That is, in terror management terms, their worldviews get polarized more under death threats. So this has uh, implications, obviously, for religious and political conflict. They sort of mentioned this at the video right before, when I was cutting that off, that uh, you know, what would happen on a, on a national scale if a culture presented a threat to our worldview and we had to decide whether or how much to help them or not. We've seen in other cultures that they've, they've had studies done with, uh, for example, uh, in Iranian students, mortality salience resulted in more support for terrorist attacks. So when they've done studies in, uh, I think this is in, yeah, this is in Iran, uh, in, in the control conditions, uh, they had a benign sort of figure that they were asked to approve a speech that somebody made that was a benign speech, that is, love everybody and let's all get along. Uh, and that the, but under the mortality science condition, what happened was that the Iranian students preferred more the speech of the person who had a more death to America type attitude to it. Uh, that is, again, it shifted them in the direction of support for somebody who, uh, the, the mortality threat strengthened that uh, support for somebody who offered a clear, simplistic type solution. And it has the same effect on Americans too. There's been some studies done on support for harsh retaliation among American college students, things like nuking the enemy or using weapons of mass destruction on a country that threatens us, mortality salience tends to polarize that and make it worse. So clearly the implication of some of, of these theories for religious and political conflict is, uh, is that, um, that if you set up a, a fear or mortality situation, people are likely to polarize more than what they would have done so otherwise. Uh, and that many political messages actually might even stoke that or appeal to people's fear of, of death and, uh, and defending against any cultural attack there. So another interesting thing about that is that many of these negative attitudes towards outgroups or people who threaten worldviews actually become more benign once that threat is eliminated. This might seem sort of twisted, but if we are reassured that we've got the other person or that they, we've neutralized their threat, many of the negative attitudes go back down to whatever they were before. This is an interesting study that actually I mentioned Professor Williams before uh, worked on. But what he found was is that uh, the study was done up in a clever way where they had people read uh, articles about people who challenged their, their Christian worldviews uh, and that there was a subset of those though where the challengers were eliminated. So the, the quote here I have is, not all death is unwelcome. If the, someone who challenges your worldview dies, there actually is a comforting effect. So what they did was that they had some people read an article about groups of people moving into the Holy Land into Nazareth. So if you know your theology, that's Jesus' hometown. He's a hometown Nazareth guy. Uh, and that the article that they read was bogus, but what it said was is that their Muslims are moving in and just outpopulating the existing people, Jews and Christians. And so it said the article ended with that the high birth rates, and they were having a parades that were Islamic, pro-Islamic parades in Nazareth. It was very assertive that they were showing, we're here, you know, get used to us sort of thing. And so the, that was one condition where they read this article. Another uh, condition had the same article, but it ended with, but they were going to have a march and a bunch of uh, planes were ferrying in some of the relatives and people for this march, but the plane crashed and they died. That is, the people who th were threatening to Christian values here actually perished in the plane crash. What they did was that they compared these groups on their, um, 
And then they also had some people read essays on death, their own death, or write essays on their death, and some people not. But what they found was is that, if you look at the graphs at the bottom here, the, uh, the again, that measure of the word fragments, how many of them were completed in a death direction, and there's a control condition where the essay was just about something else that wasn't religious related. The article where the people had to read about the Muslims moving into Nazareth, you could see that there was an increase in the amount of fragments that they completed in the death direction. So they... Uh, presumably had unconscious fears of death that were spiked by reading about this takeover of Muslims. In the plane crash condition where some of the Muslims died, it went back down again. That is, again, reassuring them that these threateners, the the, the people who threatened their worldview were eliminated, physically eliminated, causes those, the death fears to go back down again. It's an interesting manipulation. Oh, and they also found that too, their liking for Muslims was reciprocal as well. Yeah, I like Muslims pretty well when you read it in a neutral condition. Wait, they're moving into Nazareth? Don't like them so much. Oh, they died in the plane crash? Yeah, they're good. Um, so you can see that, that, that this was sort of a, it adds an extra twist of, of manipulating the threat level. This is added evidence that there is a, this reciprocal relationship between threats and my own mortality and my worldview. Um, let me give a different example of a study here um, that, uh, let's see, I'm going to have to cut my, some of my other ones. I'll, I'll just give an example of one or two other studies that are of a religious nature. For Some of you might be interested in these things. What happens when the worldview is religious and not political? Uh, that is, you might, as you might imagine, some people's religious world, uh, views tend to hinge upon a very sort of tightly nailed down worldview. Take fundamentalism, for example, biblical literalism. Anything that threatens that, according to this theory, should also should not only stoke an anxiety about uh, my views might be wrong or the Bible's not literal, but also on a deeper level their own mortality. This was a study that I thought was cool because what they actually showed an equivalence is fundamentalist beliefs about biblical literalism and their own death awareness. It's a similar design. Again, you have different people read different messages and you have some of those people who are exposed to to their own death thoughts and other people not. But in this case, what they did was they had people read Bible passages about the resurrection of Christ. So uh, some of these conditions were just neutral where they had them look at something like the syntax or just pay attention to what the writer is talking about, who the characters are. But in one condition, what they called the impeachment condition, it points out the contradictions involved in the Bible. If you've ever read the different gospel accounts, so they don't agree on some of the facts. Uh, In some of them, different women appear at the tomb. In some cases, Jesus is... uh, talking to some people, in other ones, he's, there's nobody there, or whatever. So there, there's contradictions directly involved in that. And some people were told to focus on the contradictions specifically. So if you see where this is going, that would be threatening if you had a biblically literal worldview. There's contradictions, and I didn't know there was contradictions. So some of these people, as you would imagine, they don't really care about biblical literalism. The low fundamentalists would be people who either don't really care about religion or they don't really have an investment in literalism. But other people, subjects were high in fundamentalism. So again, they had these people read these passages and then they had them do that word fragment completion task. How many of these words were completed in a death direction? And I even made a graph of these at the bottom. You could see that here's the amount of fragments that were put in the death direction up here presumably reflecting, again, unconscious fears of death. Low would mean that they're not afraid of death. The low fundamentalists uh, really did, it doesn't really matter that much. And a bunch of other control conditions of just focusing on the text of the Bible, but not the contradictions, that doesn't make a difference for them. But the one group that did make a difference is the high fundamentalists. And the high fundamentalists specifically who are in that contradictory exposure condition. So in other words, for those people who do have an investment in biblical literalism, and those contradictions are pointed out in the Bible story, 
they had more unconscious fears of their own death. What does that mean? I think that this kind of this gives some indications about really what is at stake. I'm sure many people have experiences of, of debating or arguing with people about religious matters. What this shows is that it goes a little bit deeper than just um, these. Th- they want the Bible to be perfect and uh, literal, or that they want to preserve a belief in doctrines. When people are defending religious concepts, they actually have their the worldview is at stake is this mortality salience in check. This holds death fears in check for them. When somebody pokes at them and says, look, this isn't true, or uh, gives some evidence for these views, it's more than just a contradiction of these facts. It's an emotional reaction that the person is going to have because that is their ticket to immortality there, and that it raises fears of their own death when those are challenged. Um, The the, the last study I'll talk about is actually the, this was done, let me fast, oh, okay, it's the next one. Uh, this has to do with evolution. This is another cool study that was done uh, showing, very similar to what I just talked about, the Bible contradictions. What happens when beliefs on creationism or evolution are challenged? So, uh, as you might imagine, uh, if somebody has a, a literalistic worldview with religion, they have an investment in the creation story. In this experiment, what they did was that they had some people who were both creationists and evolutionists read an article that was... Uh, describing the basis for some evolutionary views. In this case, the essay from Stephen Jay Gould was about vestigial organs. So like in whales, you might be aware that whales have little tiny leg bones that have no longer, they're no longer useful in whales. And so the article was making a fairly strong case for, you know, that evolution occurred. Why would God create these things, in, in other words? And then they had the people do that word fragment task afterwards. How many words did they put in a death direction as opposed to a neutral direction? So... You can see here that the one group that stood out were the creation believers who read the article about evolution. They had a higher death, unconscious death fears than either the people who were creationists who didn't read about evolution or the evolutionists reading about evolution. So again, putting it into TMT terms, those people who were exposed to a worldview threat, in this case a threat to their creationist views, actually had higher death-related fears. So again, what's the implications for this? I think that most people, you know, uh, that around here that I've talked to, you know, have frustration with discussing issues. Why won't people uh, accept data on evolution, or why people, why won't they? Why are they so dug in and entrenched with views? This would imply that it's not just simple bullheadedness or dogmatism. It gets cuts deeper than that. From a TMT perspective, again, the people are defending their worldview. This is what keeps mortality fears in check. If somebody comes along and pokes at that worldview, it's not just a matter of intellectual debate anymore. This is an actual threat to their sense of, of immortality, their symbolic immortality. Um, let's see, I think I'll... Well, this is another cool thing. I want to talk about uh, the... Well, no, I don't want to talk about that. I've got to skip ahead. I've got some cute chimp pictures, but there are some, there's some work there that actually shows that... Um, I can just summarize it here. That shows that people distance themselves from their own animalness. Any hint that they are creatures who have, uh, you know, a, a continuum of people and animals is rejected more so under mortality salience conditions. Now, one the, rather than leave people on a note that mortality salience always causes negative things, what are some of the interesting work on, on TMT also suggests that you could. There's a dual nature to mortality salience and, and terror management, and that is if the positive aspects of somebody's worldviews are made salient, under mortality salience conditions, they defend those more too. So as you might be aware that religious 
messages uh, contain both negative and positive elements. If you read the Bible, there might be some nasty stuff, but there's also a lot of positive things too. Love your neighbor, you know, don't just smite people, turn the other cheek after you've smitten them or something. So there are, uh, when, there are studies that show that when those aspects are made salient to them, that is, let's say, have a religious person read uh, golden rule type stuff in the Bible and then exposed to mortality salience, the people actually end up defending uh, a worldview that is more accepting. So what's odd about this is that, uh, that religion might contain, and political views as well, contain mixed positive and negative messages. If the positive ones are primed or made more active, the person, when under threat, defends those more too. And this happens so with things like, for example, giving money to charity, if that's a Bible passage on giving to the poor, if that's made more salient, high fundamentalists under death threats support giving charity more, to charity more. So there's some interesting work where people actually uh, have what would be the opposite of what you'd think of as a bellicose sort of uh, uh, screw the poor and bomb the other people effective mortality salience. If those aspects of the religion that you want to accentuate are made more relevant to them and then under death threat conditions, they endorse those more. And this happens in different religions too. So for example, there's studies with Iranian people where the positive Quranic verses are shown to them and then they're reminded of their own death. They support those more. So I don't, I don't want to leave people with the impression that, that mortality salience is all about doom and gloom and threats. What this would imply is, is that it depends on what message is, is accentuated with people. If somebody wants to, for example, get a fundamentalist person to support positive messages, make that part of the Bible more salient to them. Uh, remind them what aspects of religion are positive, and that will have that effect. Um, now, the last part, though, is that many people might say, well, okay, what about atheists? What's the implications of this theory for people who don't have a worldview that includes literal immortality? Does that mean that we're immune from the effects of, of death threats because we're not expecting to live for the resurrection or be reincarnated? That is, uh, we are proudly not using that as a, a security blanket. Uh, let me read what Becker has to say about this. He essentially says that it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether the cultural hero system is frankly magical, religious, and primitive, or secular, scientific, and civilized. It's still a mythical hero system in which people serve in order to earn a feeling of primary value, of unshakable meaning. Civilized society is a hopeful belief and a protest that science, money, and goods make man count for more than any other animal. In this sense, everything that man does is religious. So there are just as many non-theistic, non-religious worldviews that can be defended as religious worldviews. So think of, uh, especially in systems that are, are um, that are uh, the cult of Stalinism and Mao, for example, were, according to Becker's definition, religious in the sense that they inspired self-esteem and striving towards immortality. Maybe they were atheistic, and the people didn't think that they were literally going to have the resurrection like Christians, but in some sense, those views gave those people a sense of purpose and meaning that was, again, a symbolic immortality. If you're waving Mao's little book, you had a sense of pride that you mattered for something more than just your own life. This can also be not just in you know, uh, these systems of cults of personality, but also the things that many people here might value instead of religion. Human rights, humanism, science, those things are also worldviews that are defended because they give our life meaning. Somebody might not say, oh, well, I'm going to go to heaven or when I die, I, that, that's the only thing that would matter to me. Uh, 
But they might say uh, that they support uh, these values as that's their ticket to immortality. What Becker would say is that has the same effect. If those things are attacked, if anybody pokes at the Bill of Rights or messes with Jefferson or says that science doesn't matter, to many people who have a naturalistic worldview, that would be just as threatening as people who have religious worldviews. So I want, I, I want to leave with, so this is a message specifically to this audience that this isn't something that just applies, these theories don't just apply to people who have uh, supernatural type worldviews or religious worldviews. So finally, I guess then, what, what does this mean on a practical level? Uh, I, I don't have a lot of, uh, of things like here's what people should do. Many of these things have obvious implications for politics and whatnot that we already talked about. But really what, um, what should somebody do is to many of the uh, people who are existential, the modern existentialists say that we, the denial of death in our culture is particularly strong, that we tend to trundle off uh, old people out of sight. They die in hospitals. We tend to seal them up and make death pretty. We don't like to be around reminders of death. Uh, many existentialists would say that that's gone too far, that we should learn to be, have a worldview that's more comfortable with acknowledging mortality on a regular basis. Um, so things like having exposure regularly to, instead of having a youth culture that we're never going to die and that we can just accumulate money and transcend death, all the things that we talked about as being illusions, as being defenses against mortality, to live more consciously with those reminders every day. Uh, not in a negative or morbid sense, but in a sense that this is part of life, that this is just another side of the same coin, that it's going to happen to me and I'm going to make life count now. Uh, instead of saying, I can transcend and, and cheat death. So also to choose ideologies that don't rely upon the strident defense of that guy is threatening my worldview, I'm going to wipe him out. That ide ideologies don't have to be threatening to other people. Um, in any type of psychoanalytic system, if, you're, you know, if you've studied Freud, the goal of Freud was to make the unconscious conscious, to consciously know, to be able to recognize the things that, that I mentioned, that these are, oh, this is a, a, bul a bulwark for my worldviews. To recognize when you see a commercial or an ad or a political uh, package or a doctrine that this is really a more than just what it says. It's actually a worldview defense. If we make that conscious, we can recognize what it is that we're doing when we do it and, say, uh, and to be, take a step back and say that this is, this is my effort. Maybe what I'm doing is going too far, that I'm... I'm defending against my own sense of insignificance by doing this action. Uh, and that there are ways that you can strive for Im immortality in a non-destructive way. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to strive against other people's worldviews. So I know that these, th these things might sound like platitudes, and you've probably heard them before. If, uh, if you're an existentialist, this might be the way that you live your life. There's really no easy way around it. Becker is not a fun guy to study. TMT research is not optimistic because you know it implies thinking hard about facts that are... Uh, stark, but I think that uh, it is something that does, isn't necessarily negative. Uh, the person provides meaning to their lives through positive ways to defend their worldviews, you know, charity and supporting other people. So I guess that's the, if I need to leave on a kumbaya message, I guess that's my kumbaya message.
To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission.